Welcome to the COO Roundtable, powered by PFI Advisors. Here's your host, Matt Sonnen. Hello, everyone. Welcome to episode seven of the COO Roundtable. I believe this episode will go live right around, if not exactly, on our announcer's sixth birthday. So, so let me just say happy birthday to Luke Sonnen. Uh, he is on a field trip to the park today as part of his summer camp. So I just want to say happy birthday, Luke. He likes to remind us often that he is the true boss of PFI Advisors. So uh, we wouldn't be here without uh, Mr. Luke. Um, but we have a very exciting episode today. Uh, as I've said many times, the goal of this podcast is to elevate the general perception of the COO role within the RIA community. Uh, we're trying to shed light on the fact that this role serves much more than simply a technology function within your organization, but the COO is a true business consultant within your firm that not only drives profitability, but also opens the door for both organic and inorganic growth. And both of our guests today are a perfect example of that, so I'm very excited to speak with them. Uh, we have Heather Goodman, uh, who not only serves as a COO of True Capital Management in San Francisco, but she is also a founder of the firm. Uh, Heather and I met several years ago. We were on a COO panel together at a Persian conference, and we've spoken several times over the years. I've always been very impressed with her entrepreneurial spirit and her approach to wealth management in general and how she positions her firm in the competitive landscape of our industry. Um, as she will discuss today, being a true entrepreneur and being a true COO, she has held just about, just about every position at the firm since its inception in 2006. Uh, so I'm very excited for her to share her thoughts today with everybody. Uh, welcome, Heather. Thank you, Matt. It's great to be here, and I'm excited to, to chat with you guys today. Awesome. And joining Heather is Mark Delato of Massey Quick Simon. Uh, the firm is headquartered in New Jersey. Uh, they also have offices in Los Angeles, uh, Chattanooga, Tennessee, and Denver, Colorado. And I believe all of those locations were added over time due to acquisitions. And we're definitely going to speak to Mark about the firm's inorganic growth as well as organic uh, growth plans. Uh, Mark and I initially met a few years ago at an Echelon conference here in Southern California, and we've had some great conversations ever since around a lot of the topics that we'll be discussing today, um, products and services to offer clients, the scalability of the broader organization, uh, HR policies and procedures, among many others. I've really enjoyed getting to know Mark. Uh, he is a, a, a very thoughtful leader. Um, so welcome, Mark, and thank you for being here. Matt, thank you very much. Um, glad to be a part of the discussion, and uh, nice to meet you, Heather. Well, awesome. So, Heather, I'm going to go to you first. Um, can you just give us a, a high-level overview of True Capital Management and the history of the firm? Sure. So, we technically did start in 06, but I always joke because it was around December 28th, so I think we officially really launched in 07. <laughs> so, 2007, we... Uh, we actually, Doug Grace and I are the two co-founders. We were at Smith Barney, and I'll talk a little bit more about that probably in another question. But um, we left Smith Barney realizing that there was a, a new, a need for a platform that was much more independent and much more service focused. And so we are about, we left with about 40 million in assets and about 30, 30 clients. And now we're about 1.1 billion with about 220 households have about 36 employees. Our focus is on a full-service family office for professional athletes and 
sudden wealth individuals. And we really offer that full service component, everything from bill paying and investments all the way to insurance and alternative investments and buying homes and buying houses and family estate planning and and the full gamut. So it's a a true full service family office for a niche market that that definitely, definitely needed an independent platform like an RA versus the wirehouse uh, infrastructure. Yes. And we have offices in both LA and both LA and San Francisco. Oh, okay. I missed that. How big is the LA office? We have about nine people down in LA. Okay. Perfect. Down in Central City. Yeah. And Mark, I believe uh, Massey Quick Simon was founded about the same time, uh, early 2000s. Um, Can you give us an an overview and a background of, of the firm? You bet, Matt. So um, the co-founders of the firm were uh, uh, Les Quick, Stuart Massey, and actually Stuart's father, Dwight Massey. Uh, and they founded the firm in 2004. And really, it was born out of you know frustration um, lessons. Stuart had both recently retired, and uh, they found that they were being constantly pitched by the same brand names, pushing the same product, uh, pushing the same agenda. And... So they, they you know, got together over breakfast, as Les would say, because that's what retired people do. <laughs> they go to breakfast. Um, and so uh, the, over breakfast, they, uh, they shook hands uh, to start Massey Quick Simon and uh, each one putting, you know, up their own personal capital to uh, start the firm. And, you know, fast forward uh, 15 years now later, um, We've got about a uh, little, little over four billion of assets, 350 households, um, 55 employees, um, and really, you know, the services kind of run the gamut as we've um, evolved over time. You know, we, we were a very investment-focused firm, I would say, when we started out in 2004, focused on a lot of institutional and not-for-profit business. And over time, we added, um, you know, more and more financial planners, head of financial planning, um, and that led towards more planning opportunities and a, and a more holistic relationship um, when you're when you're looking at more than just the investment piece. And then we merged with uh, a family office in 2017 that brought with it a whole host of services that we had never even, you know, dreamed of. Of actually ones that I had said that we would never do because I didn't know anything about them. And, uh, you know, things like tax and bill pay and accounting, bookkeeping and house. And uh, that, that offering, you know, was something that we um, found very complimentary towards where we were headed in terms of the future um, and where we saw client relationships. So, um, you know, fast forward 15 years, firms changed a lot, but the, you know, the people, the culture are still very much the same. Stuart retired last year, but Les is still very active and, uh, Dwight Massey, um, proud to say that, uh, my partner, Chris Moore and I, uh, purchased his equity, uh, in 2013. So, uh, the firm is, uh, going strong 15 years later. That's great. Well, we're going to do our best to not turn this into a uh, wirehouse bashing uh, session. <laughs> um, but uh, <laughs> no, and I, <laughs> uh, I, I want to get to all those family office services. I definitely have that on the list of, of questions. But first, um, 
let's go through personally your your both of your backgrounds. So we've talked about the firm, um, Heather. Uh, before launching True Capital, um, what were you doing? Um, what was your background and uh, the the skills you picked up along the way? How are you using those uh, in your role today? Yeah, so I grew up in a very entrepreneurial family and knew that I always was comfortable running a business and I always kind of envisioned that. I didn't know what type of business or what form it would ever take, um, but I, I was comfortable around that kind of risk-minded environment. Um, I started my career at Deloitte. I was a CPA on public accounting and then moved to business development in a for a search engine during I would say internet 1.0. So I, living in the Bay Area in, in the mid 90s, you couldn't you could not work for a, a startup if, hmm. if you felt like you had some entrepreneurial spirit in you. And so I was lucky enough to do that. And after watching kind of the the highs and lows of the the dot com boom and bust, it really gave me a greater perspective of of what running a business or what what it took to actually start a business. And so after that, I looked around and decided I knew I wanted to be on the business development kind of sales side of life, but always valued my foundation of accounting and and operational side. And I kind of stumbled across financial advising and I interviewed with Morgan and Merrill and Smith Barney. And and what drew me to Smith Barney at that time was very much the entrepreneurial spirit. You could really build your own book of business and and really however you wanted. And so I, I started my career thinking that I was going to be servicing dual income families where women were either the breadwinners and or the decision makers on family finances. And I started out by, by building some seminars and doing symposiums and, and pretty quickly in my process through Smith Barney, one of the things that I did learn from growing up in an entrepreneurial household is that I wanted a business partner. I wanted somebody to go through a business with somebody to bounce ideas off of, realize that two brains are better than one. And so within my first year, I really interviewed and kind of got to know every advisor in my 100-person office in San Francisco and pretty quickly met my now partner, uh, Doug. And we just realized that our skill sets were very complementary. And so I was building kind of my holistic planning approach on financial advising. And Doug was building a business on corporate executives. And we kind of came together and realized that this could actually work. And within that first year, we had an opportunity to enter the sports world. And this was really kind of the early years of sports where family office or business management services were really not offered to athletes. It's been around for entertainment forever, but it really wasn't thought of for the athlete space because Michael Jordan was really the first athlete to make real money. And so we had an entree into the sports world, realized that it was pretty underserviced and, um, decided to really learn the business as much as we can and, and seize the opportunity. And so for the next four years or so, we learned everything we could about the business. And Doug spent four years pretty much on the road following agents and business managers and accountants and learning about what it takes to actually acquire, business, acquire clients. And I spent four years building the back office and the infrastructure and, and investing money. And so I think taking my accounting and kind of finance background and, and saying, okay, let me think about this from a business perspective, but also then learning how to invest the money and, and really create the plans that, that were needed for these types of clients was really fascinating. And that's where we realized we needed to do the holistic side of it. We needed to do the banking. We needed to do the investments. We needed to offer alternative investments. We needed to review deals that our clients were seeing 
and all those kind of things that you couldn't, that we needed to be on a more independent basis. And so, and we spent a couple of years trying to figure out what that, what that vision looked like. And we're fortunate enough to, uh, to be able to build it and had a, had a seed investor in our early days, which has been one of our lifelines and still great advisors for us um, throughout the entire process, who is Ronnie Lott. And so that's been a wonderful, wonderful relationship that we've had from day one and just really grew that business mentality of educating athletes, providing a full service and differentiating ourselves in the marketplace from not just a business management perspective or not just from an investment perspective, but doing a holistic offering for them. And so over the last 12 years, kind of what Mark said is, you know, the business kind of morphs because you add these different things. You know, we just kept having to having to add services along the way and realize that all of the skill sets that we had learned from our previous years, whether it was from my accounting and tax years, which I firmly said I never wanted to own an accounting business, <laughs> I somehow ended up owning an accounting business <laughs> that, I, that I didn't realize. But it it, it complements the investment side tremendously, and especially for our client base. So. Um, it's been a, it's been an interesting ride. It's been a wonderful evolution to watch the services grow and the athletes learn and really change that mindset of what is important for them. That's great. I'll, uh, I'm going to make a random aside here for a second. Uh, being fairly new <laughs> to the entrepreneurial world, I, uh, everything I've learned about entrepreneurship, I learned from the movie, Jerry Maguire. <laughs> Uh, and, and I watch that anytime it comes on TV. And so you're talking about athletes, you know, not making a ton of money. So I, when did that movie come out? The mid nineties, I think, um, uh, maybe yeah. it was the early two thousands. Uh, so I was watching it just the other night and you know, the whole point of that movie, Cuba Gooding Jr. is trying to get the big contract. I need the big contract. And so at the end of the movie, he gets the big, the big contract. And I just watched this the other night and I was blown away. It was an $11 million contract over four years. And that was like the biggest thing. <laughs> wow, I, we finally made it. And I thought, wow, the uh, the benchwarmers now make eleven million a year. It feels like across you know all the different uh, <laughs> all the different. I was just shocked that that was the uh, contract. Certainly changed. Yep, yep. So yep. I can I can definitely uh, yeah. That's why I, I can say definitely. Yep. It's changed a lot over the last twelve fifteen years. Yes, ever since Jerry Maguire came oh, out. <laughs> Yeah, Jerry Maguire, Maguire and Cuba Gooding Jr. saying, show me the money really changed the whole the environment. Yep, <laughs> so exactly. It is, uh, it's been an interesting transition to this. Yep. Yeah. So that was my random aside. Uh, back on track. Mark. Um, no, I love it. <laughs> uh, what were you doing? So you've been at Massey Quick for a long time. Um, what, what, what's your background? What were you doing before joining the firm? Yeah, so I, I actually... Um, I grew up in um, in Morristown, which is where our headquarters are now, so I really haven't strayed too far from the nest. Um, but uh, I grew up in a household. Uh, my father was a physician. And so, you know, it's, it's interesting, you know, the, the dynamic of um, running a business and being business-minded was something that I was always interested in much more, um, and my grades really showed it. Uh, when it came to any kind of science classes. Um, and so for me, I, I never wanted to be a physician. I always wanted to be um, involved in some way, shape or form in markets and, you know, did, um, you know, stock clubs in, in high school and then went to Villanova, graduated with a business degree and came out 
Um, and at the time, you know, the, the dot-com bust had already taken hold. Um, you know, Enron had, had gone and uh, the accounting scandals, mutual fund market timing. I mean, the, the, the business world and the industry, financial services were changing pretty rapidly at the time. And I was able to find an opportunity, uh, ironically, uh, with a training program with Quick and Riley, which was uh, less of family's firm that he and his father started back in the mid 70s. I didn't know less personally, it was just a pure coincidence. Um, so I got my licenses and you know, I did a corporate rotation and I partnered with a with a successful team in New Jersey and I was covering bank branches and you know pitching annuities and mutual funds. And that's kind of what the business model was. And I quickly learned that it wasn't what I wanted to do for the rest of my life. Um, my talents didn't really lie in in those areas, and I had a great market manager um, that brought me up to a managerial job to help me supervise the market with him. And um, you know, it was a role that was rooted in a lot of the things that uh, I've taken on over the years: compliance, uh, operations, training and development, people. I mean, it was I was able to use you know my knowledge of being an advisor and my rapport with other advisors um, and, you know, make a name for myself. And so um, in 2007, I, uh, I met, you know, one of my best friends um, from high school uh, told me that the COO here was leaving and uh, that I should come in and meet with Lesson Stewart. And um, so I came in and I met with them and three weeks later I was here. Uh, it was a pretty, easy decision for me. I was young. I didn't have any kids. I didn't have a whole lot of responsibilities. So, you know, making big changes, um, you know, was not a big deal for me. You know, fast forward, uh, my best friend from high school and I are still here. We're now partners of the firm. He's their CIO. Um, but, you know, looking back, it just, it was the, the whole fiduciary model really resonated with me. Um, you know, the fee for advice uh, and not product just it just made so much sense to me. And, um, and, and I really just loved the altruistic nature of the IA world. So um, of course the opportunity to get in on the ground floor too was exciting and rewarding. The culture was very merit based. Uh, and the more that I put in, I got out. So, um, you know, as you said, I've been here for 15 years and the, and the roles, clearly uh, changed over time. We were like six people when I, I think there were six people when I started here. And, you know, over time, um, you know, I've been able to take on a lot of things and learn a lot of things uh, in my role as a COO, CCO. And we've talked about that a lot uh, on this podcast. We've written about it on our blog. Um, a lot of times the the job description of a COO is just quote, do everything around here that needs to get done. <laughs> uh, it can, it can oftentimes be very daunting. Um, but in addition to that overwhelming role of COO, like you mentioned, you also have the CCO job title. So how do you juggle between those two? And do you find a lot of overlap between COO and CCO uh, functions? Yeah, very, very much so. Um, you know, it's it's a challenge uh, to juggle both roles. And um, I've been doing both since 2013 when I became a partner. I think that was like my barrier to entry was <laughs> we'll give you the we'll give you uh, a partnership. But uh, but you got to take on the liability of the CCO role. 
um, which I was which I was happy to do. Uh, I had been, you know, I had been assisting Les, uh, who was the the CCO um, since 2007, and so uh, you know a lot of the things I was doing and taking responsibility for um, anyway. But you know, on the compliance front, after Madoff and Dodd Frank, um, you know things change and they change rapidly with regard to custody and privacy and cyber security. Um, you know, they were all important initiatives that I had to come up the curve on pretty quickly and own responsibility for. And they were all, you know, rooted in what we were doing on an operational basis um, in terms of account openings and, um, you know, how we provide information to clients. And, uh, and so they're very much intertwined. Um, I'm, I'm blessed to have, you know, a great staff that have built over time uh, that's taken on more and more of the day-to-day responsibilities with regards to, you know, things like performance reporting, so technology systems, infrastructure systems, and, and even the compliance piece too. I mean, it, it's just, it keeps, you know, it keeps evolving and, you know, new regulations come out. Um, almost every other year that are pretty big projects um, that require us to kind of assess and reassess and reassess again how we're doing things from both a, a regulatory compliance and operational basis. Yeah, uh, my former life, I was a COO slash CCO as well. And I do think there's a, a, a ton of overlap. Um, many times I didn't know when I was doing it, like, you, you know, you mentioned uh, you know, cybersecurity is, is the, the, the easiest example. When I'm doing something cybersecurity related, was I wearing my compliance hat or my operations hat? It's, it's, it's really both. So um, it definitely can be done. You just have to be willing to uh, work a lot of hours uh, to, to do both. But um, I, I, uh, I do think there is a lot of that overlap. That is for there. sure. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, and then Heather, talk about time management skills. Uh, in addition to COO, you're a founder and president of the organization. So what what are your on a, from a day to day perspective? What are your day to day responsibilities, and and how do you find time for for all of them besides working twenty hour days? <laughs> yeah, no, it, there, as we all hope and wish that there are more hours in a day, but yeah. I don't think any of us have figured out that that secret sauce yet. So we we just burn the midnight owl probably more <laughs> than we said. But uh, no, I, I definitely was a, you know, I'm fortunate now to not have to wear the CCO hat anymore as of recently, which is wonderful. Um, but CFO, CTO, COO, <laughs> president, CHRO, you know, any, any other um, role that you can ever imagine within the firm has, has really been kind of even client relations and, and advisor and, you know, all those aspects. So I think the biggest thing for me is realizing that and this took me a while. I would say definitely in my first five to eight years of the firm, I I felt like I had to still be involved in every decision that was made. Um, and I think the firm felt that I needed to be in every decision that was made, just because there were so few of us. You know, we we were small and and relatively, you know, we're growing at a nice pace, but didn't really get hit mass until probably 2013, 2014, when we started doing some more acquisitions and lift outs. And I think. Upon that time, I realized that you really have to build an incredible team and, and really empower and trust those around you so that you aren't holding up or being kind of a bottleneck to to the success or to the evolution of the firm. And, and that was definitely a learning experience. I think it's hard as a founder to to 
shed some of those responsibilities. And so now I think I really focus my energy on, on the core things that, that matter to the firm every day, but yet empower and hope that the people that we brought in, which I know we have, can really rise to the occasion. And we've been very lucky. So from a technology standpoint, we, we spent a lot of time building the platforms from Salesforce and Adapar and, and uh, data faction, all the different things that you need, but getting them to talk together and then empowering a team to kind of run that and be a part of that. From the compliance side, I had to really lean on my chief investment officer and, um, and use a lot of outside counsel and things for that. And then, you know, we, we really outsourced probably a lot more than we did in-house because in order to find the time you needed, you needed help. And so I would say now, and now that I've been able, we reached a certain critical mass, we've been able to hire certain positions that have really helped out in those areas. I've been able to spread my time a little bit more towards the growth opportunities and the true efficiencies of the operation. But it, it, it was a definite challenge, especially in the first probably, you know, eight years or so. And I'd say the last three to four, we've been really fortunate to to build that infrastructure, to invest in the technology, to invest in the people and uh, and be able to allocate my time the best. But, but I will say the hardest thing was realizing that there are going to be decisions made that I'm not going to be the, the final say on mm-hmm. and be excited about that. And that was hard, but it, but it's the right thing to do and you, you have to do that. Yeah, if you're going to have that growth, you, you have to find that that point at some point. <laughs> um, you have to get there. Um, yeah. <laughs> yep. So, okay, so let's let's go one step deeper. So um, you hit that point. You realize, okay, we're going to need to hire. We're going to need to delegate, et cetera. Um, we've, we've talked about it a lot. One of the core functions of a COO, um, usually at RIAs, it is the COO who's in charge of posting the job descriptions and getting the candidates in and kind of managing the, mm-hmm. the interview process. So um, kind of in the weeds here, how, how did you go about, um, um, what was your kind of your hiring strategy and how have you? Um, yeah. So we, yeah. <clears throat> we took a very, sorry, we took a very deliberate process, you know, to going through how we were going to fill up these roles. And I think the first role that I, I sought after that I thought was going to be the most valuable was the CFO. I said, you know what, I need somebody who is looking at the business from a from KPIs and from profit margins and looking at the cost structure just as much as the revenue structure. And so the first position that we went after was a, a true, true CFO. And that took us a lot longer than we expected. And But the fortunate thing was during that process, I found a woman who I immediately saw the skill set. She came from a family office. She had an incredible accounting and finance background. But um, had a strong operational side. And so I brought in a director of finance and operations. And so she was kind of the first piece of the puzzle. As I found her, we then said, okay, you know what? I, and I literally hired her and said, I'm not 100% sure what position you're going to be, but I think you'll be great. <laughs> I like your skill set. I think I, we can figure this out and, and we will find a role for you. And uh, she's been amazing and, and her role has morphed. But in that time, we were, she was able to take on a lot of the operational side of things, more so than the CFO side of things, which actually freed up my time a little bit more to start and focus on what we really needed from that CFO side. So at the same time, we went out and said, okay, we're looking for a CFO as well as a general counsel chief compliance officer. And I said, you know, between the CIO and myself, we spend so much time on the chief compliance side of it. We spend 
a lot of time on the legal side of aspects of things because we have a lot of um, alternative investment products that we've created. So I said, we really need an in-house general counsel that can draft these documents, oversee our investments, oversee the compliance of them. And so we were very, very fortunate at the same time. And we used placement firms and, and identified exactly what we were looking for. And we were fortunate in both scenarios that the general counsel chief compliance officer and the CFO come from a very, very strong alternative investment as well as investment finance background, not just a accounting background on the CFO side and not just a legal transaction background from the general counsel side. They both have this extremely robust offering of finance and accounting and investment and fund accounting and fund knowledge, which has been tremendous. And so um, by bringing on, we literally just brought those two individuals on in April. And I can already, you know, we're 90 days in. We were joking on Monday. We said, wow, you, all right, we all made 90 days. <laughs> we're excited. And I looked back and I said, I said, I can feel the difference tremendously. And um, it's just been a, a breath of fresh air to have somebody who, to have a group or a team and now really an executive team that we've built out who can take on and think about these topics more than just myself and, and Doug and and have a resource in, in a group of people who have a vast level of experience that can can really apply the their skills to it. So we're I think we're just scratching the surface on it, but um, we see the next position potentially as a chief revenue officer. That's something we we think could be a really interesting position and we're we're thinking about how to grow and, and really focus on the on the business development side. Um, but gosh, big, big believers in bringing in professional management to help run the business so that it can free up my time to not only focus on the overarching direction of the firm and whether it's from technology and operation, but also from a growth and M&A standpoint as well. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And wealth management, RIA world or not, I think, you know, just any business, uh, those are usually the first couple of hires is, okay, we need uh, accounting slash finance covered and legal. Um, so that, that makes perfect sense. Mm -hmm. those, those are your first, your first ones to tackle. So that's great. Um, so Mark, you and I have talked, uh, offline, uh, you have a very unique hiring process, um, with the goal of, of, of finding that right cultural fit as you add more and more employees. Um, you said you're up to, you've gone from six to 55. Um, and, and that is the, you know, the, the, from going from six to seven, that, that seventh hire is going to make a big impact on culture and then the eighth. And, and so it is, it is a big deal when you're going from smaller numbers to larger numbers. So, um, talk to us about that, uh, strategy of yours on, on, um, hiring and, and keeping the culture the way it is. You bet. Um, you know, for, for us, um, you know, the hiring piece has always been uh, a big, important part for us in our growth over time. The, um, you know, the first thing I would just mention is that uh, internships, you know, was a big thing for us uh, very early on. And, you know, since even before May, we've had, um, you know, people constantly rotating through the organization, which um you know has provided a very natural stream of candidates you get a you get a look at them they get a look at you um you can see how they operate in the work environment and that's that's been you know uh, a tremendous feeder for us i mean we've, we've got five current employees that have come out of our internship programs 
um, and they go all year long. So I think, you know, that's one of the first ways to see if somebody's a cultural fit um, is just to, to get them in the door, get qualified candidates in the door and see how they see how they do um, from a from a, you know, big picture perspective, um, getting everybody in the organization uh, somehow involved in the hiring process has always been um, a key distinguishing characteristic from my perspective. Um, and obviously you can't get everybody involved, but you start with departments and you start with line leaders and, or, or people that line leaders, um, identify as being candidates to join a group. So we've got a hiring team. Uh, it's a nine person committee. Uh, I've got two co-heads, um, one of them being a client advisor, one of them being our office manager and head of infrastructure. Uh, and I try to take a hands-off approach um, and, you know, really delegate a lot of the decision-making and opinion-forming to that group amongst themselves. Um, so, as I mentioned, all areas of the firm are represented. You've got family office, you've got operations, client advisory, um, research, et cetera. And, you know, from there, it's you want to diversify experiences. I've got somebody that's been with the family office for 26 years. I've got an entry-level analyst that's been here for, you know, less than a year and literally has gone through the process themselves. Um, so they know what it's like being on the other side of the table. Um, and again, it's from, you know, managing partner myself level all the way down to entry-level analyst that's getting in front of these candidates. And I think, you know, it's it's important to have diverse opinions and perspectives, um, but with the strong sense and commitment at the end of the day to the cultural piece. And I think you have to evaluate candidates based um, on what your core values are. And so, um, you know, when, when we ask everybody on the committee to fill out an assessment, um, we're asking them, you know, do you think that the candidates fit uh, within the core values or not? Um, and each one of the questions is tailored around uh, the the core values of the firm. So it's a pretty rigorous process. It starts with, you know, a phone screen um, and then, you know, multiple interviews, online assessments. We have a tracking system. You know, we've systematized it and we've got a process from resume intake to their, their first day here as a full-time employee. But um, we're constantly evolving, uh, constantly looking at new systems, constantly looking at new uh, new ways to think about hiring. Um, and again, it's a it's a it's led by the group. You know, I, I very much try to empower them to own the process and make it better as they see fit. And, and you know, I think given where we are right now in terms of you know the economy and and uh, it's it's tough to find quality candidates. It's a tight labor market. And I love to have, you know, a diversified group of people uh, and their opinions uh, to, to find candidates because it's, it's very challenging. No, that's great. And, and I can, uh, to, to echo Mark's point about the internships, that's been a huge driver for us. We've believed in the internship program from day one, actually one of our interns from Smith Barney is one of our largest advisors today. 
Wow. <laughs> so we've we've really believed in that process, and we have um, you know nine to ten interns every six months, and probably over the years have hired I want to say eight to ten of them. And so I, I truly believe that the internship program, we have a, a strong relationship with Northeastern. We have a strong relationship with USF. We have a lot of different schools that, we, and we're building it out. Um, you really get a feel of that culture and that, that breadth of that, their services and, and their skill set and how they work with you incredibly well. So Mark, I, I couldn't agree with you more on the internship program being a, a huge feeder, feeder program. That's great. Uh, okay, so now let's tackle uh, family office. I, I, I got myself, uh, I distracted myself. <laughs> I wanted to tackle these other questions, but um, I've talked to you both uh, personally. I, I, I think the term family office is being watered down drastically in our industry right now. It feels like everyone is touting themselves as a multifamily office um, and when you ask firms to define, well, what do you mean exactly by that? They'll, they'll backpedal a little bit and they say, well, what we mean is we're high touch. Uh, we care deeply about our clients. I go, right. That's not exactly family office. And they say, well, um, we call ourselves a family office because we give out our cell phones to our clients. And it's like, right. <laughs> so that's great client service. But what, 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 what exactly are you offering, um, from a service? service. <laughs> yeah. And they, they usually just go back to the same, uh, asset allocation, financial planning tools. And I say, okay, great. Um, I, I love the client service, but this doesn't feel like very differentiating to me. So, um, you both have talked about it. So Mark, I'm going to go to you first. Um, because I know you guys do, both of you offer true family office services. So, Mark, um, walk me through some of the services you guys are offering at, at, at Massey Quick. <clears throat> you bet. So, um, as I mentioned earlier, uh, we had a family office merge into our firm in 2017. And that was a, a big, um, you know, that was a big event for us. It, it's the services that they had been providing to their family um, was something that I never could even conceptualize trying to build out myself. Right. So uh, things like tax and bookkeeping and, you know, uh, payroll foundation and philanthropic giving generational education. Like I just even trying to, to think about, building out an offering like that, um, I could never get my head wrapped around. Um, and that's why the merger made so much sense for us because it was something that we wanted to offer for clients and our clients were asking for, and in some cases going other places for. So, um, you know, for, for us, family, family office services, um, you know, it's something that we've been doing, technically speaking, for 30 years uh, as the Legacy Family Office uh, started in 1988. And, um, you know, it encompasses a lot of the things that I just mentioned. But, you know, it, it really is a very bespoke, tailored offering to each person uh, within the family. And so some people uh, utilize bill pay and some don't. Some people will utilize property management and some won't. Some people will ask for, you know, help with, uh, real estate transactions, um, buying and selling of homes, mortgages, uh, you know, 
family issues and I won't get into the details of them, but you know, that's, that's one of the distinguishing characteristics of, of really offering a true family office service is being able to pull in the right resources to solve uh, any kind of problem. And, uh, you know, everything from uh, my partner, Peter Simon, that said, I've pretty much bought and sold every asset that you could think of from a boat to an antique gun. I've negotiated five divorces for my sisters. Uh, you know, <laughs> that's the type of, you know, those experiences that I view as like true family office type offering. And, um, you know, you can't just, you can't just make that up. Uh, and, and I think the family office or family office services moniker, uh, does get thrown around a lot these days. Uh, you know, if you're offering a basic accounting type service along with the investment piece and some financial planning, it's called family office. And, uh, I think the three of us know, uh, it's a lot more than that. And Heather, you and I have talked about it. So, so what, what is your service offering and, and how are you using that to, to make the client relationships more sticky? Yeah. I mean, just listening to Mark, it, those are everyday occurrences. It's, it's crazy, mm-hmm. you know, buying, selling homes, divorces, paternity suits, you know, starting a business, negotiating, um, what type of deals they should and shouldn't be in. So yeah, all those different things. I'd say the biggest thing that people don't realize when they're, if they're truly offering family office services is that it, it isn't just what's related to that one client or the main client who has the point of contact for the family. It's every person in their family. So it's the mother, the father, the child, the grandmother, the, the, Cousins, you know, we really look at a household and say it is a full service family office for the entire family. And, and for one of our sudden wealth families, we had a situation where the, uh, the individual who came into the sudden wealth wanted to really help out his family, his parents, his siblings. And his original, you know, initial thought was, Hey, I'll give them each X millions of dollars and that'll put them away and, and we won't have to deal with it. And we said, Ooh, hold back. That's not going to work. Like let's, let's structure this. And we really set up a real estate company for the family, invested the dollars, made some of the individuals as members of the new company that now they draw income from. And they, rather than getting, you know, a lump sum, which could cause tax issues and gifting and all these other issues that come into it, we created a structure where a family can actually participate and solve issues and live off of the money that is meant for them or intended for them in a way that is much more beneficial and much more tax efficient than just saying, Hey, let me give you a certain amount of money. And then when that runs out, you'll come back for some more. And so I think when you really are dealing with full service family office issues, you are dealing with the legal, the tax, the structure, the negotiation, the, um, the boundary setting, all of those things that come greater than just, the investment side or the, the bill pay side of the world. And I, I think what we've always kind of inserted ourselves into our clients as is saying, Hey, look, we can be the no person. You don't have to be the person that has to say no, use us as kind of that person who can negotiate and, and direct things for you. And then you really build that trust and that relationship with your clients. And, and in our case, 
we really get 100% of the wallet share for our clients. There are very, very few households that we are not 100% own, you know, managing of their, their relationship. And I think it is because you can't have multiple people in your life directing and negotiating and doing all those things because they would be conflicting. And so you do really need to centralize your resources, centralize your decision-making, centralize your knowledge base of all your your financial and, and life decisions into, into a central family office so that they're all aligned and the decisions are being made that impact every aspect of your life, not just one component of it. And I, so I truly believe that when you are a full-service family office, getting into the legal, the accounting, the tax, the business side of things, you really do create an environment that is very sticky, that centralizes you as the, the key relationship in these families. And there isn't a need for additional investment managers or other people in their lives um, because you're so aligned on what's happening in their lives. Yeah, I think the, those services, uh, it's its a stickier relationship. It's a larger relationship. Um, and obviously by offering those, I do think that is truly differentiating um, compared to other wealth managers. So that's that's a, a, a client acquisition uh, story as well. Um, so, so let's switch, let's do the, the flip side. So we've got organic growth. Now let's, let's talk inorganic growth. Um, we've talked a lot, PFI has talked a lot about, um, in order to be a successful buyer in this M&A environment, uh, you need to be able to promote the infrastructure of your firm and show the selling advisor that they're going to grow faster as part of your larger organization than they can grow on their own. And we've also made the argument that there's no better person within the organization to make that pitch to the selling advisor than the COO. Um, so Heather, I'll go to you first. Um, you have a lot of experience in, in attracting advisors uh, uh, to your firm. Can you speak to your role as COO in, in that process? Yeah, I think the the reality is when you're building the infrastructure and you know the technology and you know the different offerings, you can explain them better. Mm -hmm. You just, you have a better comfort level. And so one of the things that, you know, we've been, fortunate to have a, a couple successful lift outs and, and acquisitions of advisors and immediately the growth of their, their client base ha and revenues has almost doubled or tripled within the first two or three years because of the one, the full suite of services that we offer. And we typically say that you can we, you can double your ROA on our platform versus where they typically were. And that is because of the family office services, because of the alternative investments, because of insurance, because of all these different services that you do provide. So that is something that is attracting other advisors. But I think as a COO, you pretty much built those platforms. You've created that structure. So convincing or explaining it to a new advisor comes very natural and very easy because I, I'm sure, I'm Mark and Matt, you both go this way, that if you've implemented a technology platform or if you've implemented a system, you know it inside and out and are more passionate about the success of it <laughs> than probably the person who is having to be trained to use it. Because um, you've negotiated that contract, you've negotiated the enhancements, the customization and all of those things that when you were building it, you were thinking about it for the enhancements and the ease ability of either generating reports or efficiencies of better um, investment opportunities or reporting. So I think that it's critical that the COO is involved in those in those discussions because they 
can explain and are probably the most passionate about why the infrastructure of the platform is so valuable, more so than somebody who has just learned learned of it and is implementing or executing on it versus um, having built it. Yep, that's exactly right. Uh, and and Mark, uh, how are you approaching? We, you know, we talked about it in the intro comments. You you've made a lot of acquisitions over time, added office locations, et cetera. How do you approach M and A as part of your role as as COO? Yeah, it's that's a great great question. Um, you know, I think since since day one of our firm, um, you know, we've always invested heavily in infrastructure, and and uh, you know, we always you know, Les will, will tell you that, uh, you know, we uh, set out to be a billion dollar firm from day one. And I think that uh, they they put the systems and, and the resources in place to, to be that um, without having one dollar in the door. And so you've got you got to constantly be looking ahead um, in terms of building your infrastructure and building your scalability and, and building a real true kind of institution. Um, and not just practice. And that's, that's how I've always operated. And that mindset, um, you know, has been with me since the day I started here. So when I think about, you know, the majority of firms out there, um, you know, the, the big piece of the puzzle is time and, and how to, how to, you know, grow your business, um, while also managing people, while managing expenses, while managing technology, while managing regulatory responsibility and risk. I mean, it's just simply impossible to do all those things and, and be able to grow your business. And so, you know, when I, when I look uh, and have conversations with selling advisors, a lot of their desire to be a part of a larger organization um, is that they're looking to leverage that, that infrastructure scale. Um, and because they're doing all of those things like technology expenses, people, you know, they just don't have, they don't have the time for it anymore. And so when you, you look at an organization, you know, like ours or like Heather, you, you, you can, you can see that we have the resources and the capabilities to do all those things and do them so very well that it doesn't make sense for you to allocate your time towards those. You want to allocate your time towards the things that will, um, you know, ultimately, ultimately enrich you in whatever way that, you know, may take form. But, um, you know, I think for a lot of advisors, it's just spending more time with clients um, and spending more time with clients, generally speaking, um, will result in greater revenues, more share wallet you know, referrals, new opportunities. So, you know, to to kind of like wrap it all up, um, you know, when I'm out talking with, um, with, uh, you know, M&A candidates or either, you know, advisors at Wirehouse that are looking to break free, um, ultimately it's about providing uh, a turnkey solution uh, that has the capability to take all those responsibilities um, and, and, let the advisor spend time on what they should be spending time on. Yep, that's exactly right. And we, we were talking about time management earlier. So obviously they can dedicate more time to uh, uh, what's important 
but also I think they're going to just enjoy their day better. <laughs> uh, they show up to the office a little more, uh, right. a little more pep in their step, so to speak. <laughs> um, cause that's what they, why they got into the industry to begin with. So it would get rid of the running of a business, uh, uh, responsibilities, uh, and let them just go back to what they enjoy and, um, their energy level goes up as well. So, um, I think that that is exactly right. Well, I think we're going to wrap up. Thank you so much, both of you. This has been fun and, and super informative. Um, I can't thank you both enough for sharing your insights today. Um, you're both at two of the top uh, RAs uh, in the industry. So thank you, uh, Heather and Mark, for being here. Thank you. Thanks, Mark. Thanks, Matt. It was great. Enjoyed it. Thanks, Ben, Heather. A pleasure. Awesome. And if I may, I want to end uh, the episode with a quick self-promotional plug. <laughs> uh, in addition to this podcast, I am very proud of the written content PFI Advisors publishes to our blog on a regular basis. Uh, every day on social media, we're sharing practice management articles written from all across the industry. But once a week, um, we're trying to publish articles of our own. Um, to our blog and, and in some of the uh, industry press, but the RIA press, they're very big on covering the breakaway or M&A activity. Um, I don't think they get the clicks on the practice management articles that help uh, run your business, grow your business, etc. So they're, they're reluctant to publish some deep in the weeds practice management articles. Um, on our blog, we're writing, uh, we've got articles about data aggregation and client segmentation and technology integration um, around this, um, you know, building uh, an infrastructure, et cetera. Um, and I'm, I'm very proud of, of, of those articles. So I'm guessing if you enjoy this podcast, you're, you would also love some of the articles that, we, uh, that we're putting up on our blog. So if you'd like, please subscribe um, at uh, pfiadvisors.com. You'll get an email notification whenever we put up a, a new article. We're trying to do it uh, once a week. So um, thank you everyone for listening and we will speak to you soon. Mm -hmm.